Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. My name is Known Wells. I am the creator of this show. I'm also the founder of the Feely Human Collective. How are you? How are you? How are you feeling? What's the weather like in your mind, as Kate Flanders says? How's your heart? How are you feeling? Tell me. Well, I can't hear you, but tell someone. Maybe tell yourself. Say it out loud. Check in on your feelings. We all have feelings. Feelings are feelings. They're not facts. Name them. It's huge. It's powerful. Name them. What are you feeling right now? Try to check in with that. Any hoozles. This is episode 249 on resilience that works with my guest, Kathleen Clerkin, PhD. Kathleen is a social scientist, writer, speaker, teacher, and team leader with a strong background in diversity, equity, and inclusion. She has a PhD in psychology with a specialization in research on the positive side of social identities, how diverse experiences can cultivate creativity, innovation, and performance. We talk about uh, Kathleen's fascinating work and research into resilience and leadership in this episode. We also talk about the myth of the heroic leader, the importance of perspective taking, being idealistic and realistic all at once. And of course, Kathleen's book, Resilience That Works, uh, in which she co-authored with Marian Ruderman and Katia Fernandez. Uh, It's called Resilience That Works, Eight Practices for Leadership and Life. And the link to that is in the show notes at feelyhuman.co. Um I really loved this conversation. I hope you do too. If you are someone who is in a leadership role, or maybe you just work someplace, you probably work someplace. Uh, It's it's this is this episode's for you. I really really enjoyed it and grateful for Kathleen for being a part of it. Before we get to the episode, as always, please leave a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever wherever you listen. It it does help out the show. It's a it's a free way to support me and the work that I do here on the podcast that I've been doing for over five years, which is wild. Another wonderful way that you can support me and the work I do is to join the Feely Human membership community. If you go to feelyhuman.co slash membership, you can learn more about that. But basically, it's a private membership that has two levels. One is a free level you can join. There's lots of amazing stuff and and people to gab with and engage over our feely humanity, feelings, and mental health, and all those sorts of lovely things. And then there's a paid level, which gets you access to a lot of different amazing events, like monthly expert-led workshops, our uh, feely movie club uh, feely movie club called the movies that make us feel uh, we just watched spirited away um, we have like I said the expert workshops uh, we have uh, weekly sessions with me where we like deep dive on topics and just kind of gab we we've done um, we've done a journaling session we've done a breathwork session with my my friend Katya we've talked about fear and we've talked about intimate relationships and all sorts of stuff. We do that weekly. And what else? What's up? What else is on our list? Um, we have our bi-monthly emotional check-in series and then just a bunch of other amazing things. So if you want to join the community, I, I, I would love to see you there. And if you want to join the paid level and, and you can't afford it right now, DM me on Instagram or reach out to me Hello at feelyhuman.co is the is the email email address, and I'm I'm happy to accommodate a sliding scale that works for your budget. So yeah, I would love to have you join. It's feelyhuman.co/slash/membership. Check it out. And the last thing I will say is, wherever you are, I love you. I see you. I cherish you. I I want to uplift you and support you. It's what we need to do as humans. I, I, I've been reflecting on this a lot late, lately. Um, Jessica recently being diagnosed with ADHD, you know, and, and this idea, and, you know, I've, in response to that, I've tried to educate myself better and, and be more patient with her just superstar ability to like leave her keys in random places. Uh, and, and in part, you know, educating myself has, has helped me soften, has helped me uh, build my empathy, and, and has helped our relationship, too. And I, I think about another event we had in the community recently where we did a, um, my dear friend Z 
they they came up with the idea of, of doing a watch along to the documentary called Crip Camp. And it's about the disability rights movement. And I knew some things, but I learned a lot of stuff as well. And it makes me think about how important it is to uh, just learn about stuff that doesn't directly impact us. It's so crucial, right? Because we, we, we live in the world and we are going to experience someone who has a disability, right? And, and it, just, it just deepens our, our empathy and compassion for all people, right? Um, so if you haven't checked out Crip Camp, uh, it's, it's, it's a very important watch. It's on Netflix. Uh, it's a really, really fascinating and important documentary. But yeah, just if you're hearing this and you think, oh, I don't know much about the disability rights movement, or I don't know much about the trans community, educate yourself. Do some digging. There's lots of wonderful resources out there. So educating ourselves is a way into empathy for, for people who aren't in our, in our uh, circles, you know? Anyways, uh, let's get into the episode, this wonderful episode with my guest Kathleen Clerkin on Resilience That Works. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights and the darks we face as humans trying to be human on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. You, Me, Empathy was created so that we can be witness to our collective humanity through the lens of empathy, vulnerability, and emotional curiosity. We aim to destigmatize mental health, lead fiercely with our hearts, feel our feelings without shame and judgment and share our courageous stories so that others may feel less alone and more connected as feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a brave place designed to inspire the beauty in each of us, because each of us, in all of our kaleidoscopic parts, makes up a magical whole that deserves to be seen. Today, I'm excited to be here and learn from Senior Director of Research at Candid, PhD in Psychology, and co-author of the book, Resilience That Works, Eight Practices for Leadership in Life. It's Kathleen Clerkin. Hello, Kathleen. Hey, how's it going? That's going all right. How are you? I am good. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. We were talking before we started recording that the last time we saw each other was in a car uh, <laughs> about 10 years ago. Um, yeah. So it's, it's good to see you. Good to catch up. I'm excited. Yeah, likewise. I can't can't believe it's been that long. Time has flown by. When is what? Uh, when <laughs> is what? Uh, it's an illusion time. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Social construct. It is. It is. Uh, so we always kick off the show with an emotional check-in. How are you feeling? I I am feeling excited. I'm ex- I'm feeling excited to talk to you. I'm feeling excited to to talk about uh, some of the topics for today, and also excited that it's Friday. So you know, lots of excitement. <laughs> Friday. <laughs> uh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, you recently published a book, which is very impressive and very exciting. Um, it's called, as I mentioned, Resilience. Uh, Resilience that works, eight practices for leadership and life. So I want to hear a little bit about, um, I guess let's start there. Like, I want to hear a little bit about, like, maybe your personal experience with resilience and why, why write a book about resilience? Like, what intrigues you about it? Um, yeah, uh, I can talk about that for a long time. Um, so the I'm very excited about the book. The book is kind of the result of probably about seven or eight years of research that I've done with my colleagues and co-authors. Um, 
and kind of a variety of, of research, kind of doing uh, an academic lit review, doing some applied research with uh, some of our leaders at the Center for Creative Leadership, which is the organization that I was with when I wrote the book and also the organization that published the book. Um, Center for Creative Leadership is a, a nonprofit organization focused on um, the mission of developing better leaders uh, for a better world. Um, mm. And so, um, yeah, so so it really came about, um, the book came about after doing a lot of exploration in the leadership development area, trying to figure out what what are the different things that leaders need to be a successful leader? Um, you know, and really kind of interrogating even like, what is the meaning of a successful leader, right? Like who, who are leaders? What does success look like? Yeah. Um, what are our skills, um, that people need? Um, and I was in a group when we started this project called Research Horizons, which was really kind of again to challenge like, what do we not know? What is not being done? Um, and we did, uh, a lot of kind of research looking at positive psychology, looking mm-hmm. at kind of the, the new trends in neuroscience and, um, research on well-being and kind of integrated a lot of what we were learning into, into this book. Mm. And what it like, do you have a personal connection to like leadership? Have you been in leadership roles? Like what, like why, why leadership? I mean, obviously leaders, like they lead the world, they lead our companies, they lead our nonprofits, and we want them to be equipped to do it in a way that's benefiting our collective and, you know, our planet and stuff. But like, what is, what is your personal draw to leadership? Um, You know, that, that is a good question. I think I, I stumbled into starting to look at leadership back when I was in grad school and um, my grad school research really kind of focused on um, fish out of water, kind of, for, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, I did a, a lot of research on um, social identity and, um, mm. and you know, who, who people saw themselves as being and how, how we manage multiple identities, because we all have different multiple identities, um, impacts kind of how other people react to you and also... Um, you know, how, how things get done and, um, and starting from there is really, really where I started looking at, uh, did, I did some research on like women in leadership roles mm. and how maybe some outdated stereotypes about women, um, right? Like put them at a disadvantage or unfair, um, positions when they take on leadership roles because maybe the stereotypes of being a woman and being a leader could see, be seen to be clashing. Um, mm. and so that's how I originally got into the idea of leadership by trying to understand and unpack that. Right. So trying to maybe disrupt some of these outdated, maybe potentially even misogynistic ideas around what a leader is and should be in trying to uplift women in particular. That's great. What what are some of those, um, you know, outdated ideas? <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, one of one of the, oh my gosh, there's lots, but one of the ideas, outdated ideas about leadership is this like myth of the heroic leader, right? Mm-hmm. That like the, yes. the, there's the one leader and there's this charismatic leader, or heroic leader that does it all. Um, and that's right. Like how we get into some of the really brilliant stuff is actually, that's not very effective, right? Like you end up running yourself into the ground. You end up not being able to support folks um, that you're working with. Um, and and at the Center for Creative Leadership, we really talk about leadership as a process mm. um, and, you know, uh, collective leadership. Um, and you, know, you can't you can't be a leader if people aren't following you. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, kind of flipping that script and, and talking more about the importance of um, relationships and support and empathy and things like that um, mm-hmm. as as what's important um, to, to leadership. Um, I love that. Yeah, that's I mean it's it's so important. I and when you say heroic leadership, right? It's like it makes me think about it's such a it's such a 
uniquely maybe even American idea, right? This this sort of messianic figure sort of leading the leading the way and leading the, you know, they're so brave and they have swords and they, you know, like it's it's this <laughs> weird um primal like idea of what a leadership uh, a leader is. Uh and a lot of that like is internal, right? Like I'm and I'm sure you discovered this in in your book and your research is like this idea around um like what what sort of uh drives us internally and then it there's a lot I mean I see it in business I see it in myself sometimes right this like drive toward like individualism over sort of and a lot of that can be a value but a lot of times it can completely sort of disregard the the beautiful collective that's part of that right and and in that collective is like curiosity it's 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 perspective it's understanding that like there's not one of us who got to where we are by ourselves we we got help right we had that teacher we had the friend we had the you know the book right whatever it may be so i love that um you're interested in disrupting that idea. Yeah, completely. Um, and then, you know, going back to the, some of the initial work on gender that I was interested in, what, what happens then, right, is we have this incorrect stereotype that like mm-hmm. leaders are born and not made and leaders are tough and leaders are aggressive or vicious or, um, you know, cutthroat or, um, stand alone, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have these also incorrect stereotypes about women um, being, right, like focused on on others or soft or nurturing or mm-hmm. all of the stereotypes about femininity. Yeah. Um, and then what happens is that, um, right, like those stereotypes clash and people just make assumptions that like women on, on, on two levels, right? assumptions that women aren't fitting what you need for a leader and so therefore they're not good leaders yes um and making the assumption of what a leader is which is also incorrect right and so there's like these two layers of of incorrect assumption um and that's really kind of where i got into the leadership development world Mm. um, is, is thinking about that work yeah they're um assumptions are very human right? We all do it. I talk about assumptions a lot in terms of like empathy work. It's like a lot of times it's armor, right? Sometimes it's protection, you know? Um, Sometimes it's like we make assumptions because like that's how we've always done it. Those are the patterns, right? Like there's there's so many reasons why we do it and it's not useful or and it could be damaging and it can um, sort of uh, limit you know, a marginalized group, you know, women, et cetera. Right. Um, and so how do we, and I guess I'll, I'll give this to you. Like, how do you, how have you worked through your own assumption making and investigation of your own assumptions in your life? Yeah. Easier said than done. Right. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> it's easy, uh, easy for me to talk about, um, you know, at the, data or the societal level, uh, some assumptions that happen um, mm-hmm. and uh, harder, harder to, to challenge your own because one of the things about uh, assumptions is we often don't realize when we make them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and so that, that is where, where it's really, really hard. Um, honestly, I think that like, I, I'm of the opinion that all research is me search, right? Like <laughs> all, all research is kind of also part of your, yourself growth and ha- kind of putting together the pieces of how you also interpret the world. And so mm-hmm. I love that. Um, a lot of, I think I have kind of done a lot of research on things that I want to better understand and then have tried to put that back together into, into my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, Right, right along with, with empathy, this idea of perspective taking, I think, is, mm. is one of the big things that I've learned from my research and learned from all of the, 
the findings about assumptions and stereotypes is like being able to just take a time out and think about another another perspective um, and imagine yourself in somebody else's shoes, um, you know, giving somebody uh, reasonable doubt, even just, and there's actually a chapter about this in the book, um, but the power of imagining another story is... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, imagination, big part, big part of empathy. <laughs> Early in the book, you pose a question, what have been the greatest challenges in your life so far? And I love the way you contextualize that question, but I, I, I have, I was thinking about like, you know, how, how I would respond to that. And I have some answers, but I want to hear from you first. Like what, what have been some of your greatest challenges in your life so far? And why, why do you propose that? Why do you propose that question? Or why do you pose that question in the book? Like maybe let's start there and then talk about what have been your personal challenges. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a few reasons that we, we pose that in the book. Um, one is to, um, I think just help make it real. Um, I think resilience is easy to just talk about, right? Like academically or in the abstract. Mm, um, on the and intellectual level. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's also such a buzzword, right? Where it's like, it almost doesn't mean anything anymore. Yes, I could see that. Um, yeah. And we actually we actually had uh, a lot of discussions with the authorship team and um the editor team as well about like whether to even use the word resilience because it is so buzzwordy at this point that it's hard to like get people down into the nitty-gritty of it. Mm-hmm. Um and so so yeah, so that that is one of the reasons that we kind of like ask people to think about that. And and then the other one is because a lot of the book is about kind of personalizing your own approach to resilience. And so, um, and and knowing that there's not a one size fits all. And so we wanted people to kind of have an idea in mind of like, what are the challenges in your life? So when you think about the tools, you can think about how that fits into what you're going through. Yes. I love that. Yeah. It, it ultimately, as you said, it personalizes it. And then there's, there may be some stakes um, that you can sort of latch onto as you go throughout the book and, you know, find some grounding. Otherwise, yeah, it does can, it can be just like a intellectual exchange. Um, so how about your own personal challenges? What have been some of your greatest challenges in life? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to rank order, right? Like looking back on my life and being like, well, this is number one and this is number two. Well, don't rank them. Just maybe, <laughs> maybe a couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think one of the things that um, taught me a lot of resilience was actually my my early years in undergrad, um, which is how when when I met Jessica, um, and um, so so yeah so I had I think a little bit of an un, unorthodox and, and rocky I mean I'm sure everybody has a rocky first uh, you know teenage years and, and early twenties um, but I I um, was going so I had started in community college mm-hmm. um, and I had transferred to to Berkeley um, against my parents' wishes and so they were not pleased with me um it was a little bit of a a rebel move on my part um and so it was kind of one of those big moments for me where like i think i'd always been i'd always been a good student i'd always been very agreeable and it was like one of those first moments where i really pushed back um against expectations and Mm -hmm. against um you know, people near and dear to me. And I, I was really afraid of losing, losing folks, um, doing something, rebelling and going, going someplace I wasn't supposed to go and being on my own and doing all of that. Um, and so I was, I was really scared and it was also really tough because, um, in doing, in doing that, I had to put myself through college because my parents said that they weren't supporting my decision. And so, um, you know, a year into Berkeley, I ran out of money and, um, I was very, very seriously 
and Jessica might remember this. I was, I was very seriously like having conversations with friends about like, I think what I'm going to do is be homeless for my last year of undergrad because I can't afford to have housing and also go to Berkeley and I'm not giving up Berkeley. So I think I'm going to be homeless. And I think that that is going to be what I'm going to do. Um, and it turned out it's, I, I managed to, to get some, some funding so that I, I didn't have to do that, but. That was, you know, I think, yeah, just a very tough part of my life where there was a lot of opportunities to give up and it was much easier to give up um, than to kind of continue to go on and do the thing that I really wanted to do, which was to go to Berkeley. So, yeah. Uh, where were you in? Like, where were you? Where was the community college? Was it? Out of was it not in California? Was it a different state? I don't recall where you grew up or where you yeah, went to community college. Grew up in Sacramento, so all all Cal- Northern California. Okay, and why do you think your parents were so against this idea that you were going to Berkeley, which is like you know a, an amazing school, right? <laughs> like it's a beautiful opportunity. And this is where I don't know how personal I want to get on a podcast. <laughs> it's okay. Um, um, just because I don't know. And again, we'll probably ask to edit some of this out. Um, but I don't know how personal I can get without throwing my parents under the bus, which I don't want to do on a podcast. Sure. Well, maybe just talk <laughs> about your, how it felt to you, that perspective. Like, why, I guess, why did you feel like you wanted to go to Berkeley? Why did you feel like it was the moment to say like, no, this is, this one's for me. Like I, uh, this feels aligned to where I want to go in life. Yeah. And I, I think that that, that is very much what it was. Like I, I, I think I, I growing up in Northern California, right. Had this idea of, of, Berkeley was the center of like free speech and liberation and feminism. And, um, I like, I really wanted to be there. Um, I felt like that was, that was where I wanted to be and should be. And I had felt that way for a long time. Actually, like as a kid, I wanted to go to Berkeley. (laughs) Um, and, um, and yeah, I, I remember having a conversation with my parents about being like, I'm, I'm the only one that has to live with my consequences, you know? And, um, I, I know that they wanted what was, they thought was best for me, right? Which they wanted to, to keep me close and keep me sheltered and, and have a little bit more control over my life. Um, and I understand the reasons for, for wanting that, but, um, but yeah, I think that 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 was one of those moments where this this one is for me because I'm I'm the one that has to to live with with my decisions at the end of the day. And it's brave. It is. I mean that that term is used um a lot and maybe a buzzword nowadays, but I think it is brave. Like it is brave especially if, you know, the what you knew and what you've always known is maybe a more protective life, a more sort of you know, in the the bubble of of your family, like it is brave to say, like, no, this actually, this feels aligned. I want to like go to this place that is going to challenge me. That's gonna, I mean, talk about resilience. Like that's a that's a move into the unknown. That's a move into like a space that's gonna bring up some stuff. That's gonna challenge <laughs> you, right? Yeah, and I think that that was, I think that was a big part of it. Like, um. I, I forget if it was my parents or one of my professors at, at, um, my community college, but somebody had referred to, to Berkeley as a shark tank as, as a negative thing because mm. it was so big and so competitive. Um, and they were trying to convince me not to do it because it was a shark tank. And I was like, that's what I want. Like <laughs> throw me in. Um, I really wanted, wanted, um, you know, the, the growth that comes with that kind of challenge. Yeah. And you talk about obviously the, the challenge of like making the decision, Oh, am I going to be homeless? You know, and I got to do this. Like what were some of the other things that sort of helped in, in finishing out your, your undergraduate degree at Berkeley? Like what are some of the sort of touchstones or the things that helped um, provide support? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that was one of one of the reasons that like that is such a moment that comes up for me as well as is because of um, I think it was one of the first times that I had like a really good friend group, uh, mm. you know, Jessica included. And I remember um, being very vulnerable and talking to people about this and, and um, being pleasantly surprised about how supportive people were um, and and how um, they really helped me feel like I could could accomplish things and that there was more than one path to success and that I wouldn't be by myself and I wouldn't be judged for whatever decision I ended up making. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, like my, again, we're, we're, no, nobody, nobody's an island, right? So um, <laughs> yep. other, other people's support was really important for that. Yeah. I mean, we need, we need people, we need each other. It's, it's like crucial. So important. And what, what, as I started like your book, what, and, and I mentioned at the top, so uh, before we even got recorded, I have some like skepticism around resilience, right? And you mentioned that it's a buzzword and and it is, and it's talked among, uh, among sort of entrepreneurship spaces and leadership spaces and stuff often. And I think my skepticism is rooted in probably my distaste for capitalism and, you know, the toxic sort of go, go, go productivity, like checking boxes as inherent value type of approach we have to like business nowadays. As I mean, I'm making a blanket statement, but it's what I've experienced in a lot of ways. And what is... I want to get into that, but like what was what was very clear to me and was refreshing to me as I as I even just like got into your book was that it's not that. Like it's not another like let's make you more productive and let's make you a more successful cog in this wheel of capitalism. Like that's not the book. The book is about really about self-awareness, right? Would you say? Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, we, again, we, we struggled with whether to use the word resilient for that reason. And I think I, especially in recent years, as it's become a buzzword, I've also gotten, you know, a, have found it to be distasteful when it's framed as how can you do more work? Yes. <laughs> sometimes what I think people mean when they say it. Yeah. Um, and we actually, at the end, there's a, a chapter about resilience in your organization. Um, and we took pains to make it clear that like, that's not what, what anybody should take away from this book and that resilient organizations are organizations that allow people to be proactive about self care and prioritize self care. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that that's what you know resilience at the organizational level should look like. Um, and it's not about um, doing more faster. And so, right. Um, yeah. And and um, so our our take on resilience and our our definition that we use in the book is uh, that resilience is about um, responding adaptively to challenges. Yep. Um. And so, you know, whatever that means to you and whatever challenge that you're going through. Um, and I, I really, uh, was passionate <laughs> about not using the definition of bouncing back. Um, mm-hmm. which I think is often in business speak, right? Like resilience is bouncing back. Um, and, and while like, I think in a lot of ways, it's true that like resilience means like overcoming challenges and being able to pick yourself back up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't like the idea of this like picking yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. Cause it's, I mean, you can't, right? You can't literally pick yourself up by your bootstraps. The whole idea is that that's not a thing. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I also like I have a distaste for this idea of um, resilience being bouncy, right? Like it, mm. it sounds so flippant. And when I think if you've been through hardships um, and real right challenges and adversities and things that have knocked you off your feet, um, you can be really resilient, and it sure as heck doesn't feel bouncy. 
Um, right. It's, it's hard. It's yeah, difficult. It's, it's hard. Tough. It's hard work. And I feel like, um, you know, resilience feels like doing an army crawl sometimes, <laughs> mm-hmm. not bouncing. Right. And so yeah. I think, um, yeah, yeah. I want, I really wanted to, to acknowledge the, the hard work that, that comes from that. Mm. Yeah, there's even this idea around like the bouncy idea. Um, I think there's this like I I even have <laughs> a a distaste for this. You know that you, you see it everywhere, and it's 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 in your title. So I'm like torn, right? So ten steps to conquer whatever, right? Five steps, and you're right, and you see this a lot in like mental health spaces, right? So on one hand, I'm like, okay, that can be useful. And, and, and from like a psychology perspective, it can be very helpful for people to have steps, right? Tangible steps, like clear guidelines to a thing. Uh, you have it in your book, eight practices for leadership, right? Like you have that, that, that structure and that can be useful. And it could be the thing that bypasses a lot of the the curiosity and the nuance that we need for resilience right so i'm torn because one on one hand it like it's this structure that's like uh, part of the problem and then it's and then it can be useful right that was just a random thought <laughs> yeah well you know it's funny we're, we're just going to talk about the title um <laughs> we because we struggled with that too it's like whether to put eight practices in okay um because we uh and and it was one of those things where we didn't want people to feel like they were limited to eight practices mm-hmm. um and in the book we you know we explained that like we're gonna talk about eight because this will give you an idea of the different kinds of things that research has shown will help you come yeah. through your struggles. Um, you know, but this is by no means exhaustive. And so, you know, we tried to, to put that in, in the nuances in the book, but I think we, we struggled with whether to put it on the, in the title because we didn't want people to assume that it was like an eight step program, right? Like there's no steps. Right. Um, and, it's, and there's not just eight. Yeah. Um, but I think we were hoping that putting, Putting the fact that we had a lot of tools in the book would encourage people to read it to make it clear that it wasn't academic. Because uh, our concern was that, like, if we didn't say, like, here are some eight practices, people would just think it was like us mm. theorizing about the concept of resilience without anything right. for them to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I bet that was a tough decision. <laughs> yeah. I mean, titles are very important. Um, yeah. I, yeah, it's all very fascinating to me. And I, I, I think what at the end of the day that I like lean, lean on is, I mean, you talk about this in the book, right? Like some of the things that we do in terms of, I think you use cognitive, uh, cognitive distortions is right. This binary, sometimes one of looking at things in binary terms, right? So even us in, com- in talking about the title, right? Like, let's let go of the binary terms of like, it's either this or that, right? It's either like the sort of the checkboxes or it's something else. It's much more than that, right? Let, let's step back and be curious. And so I, I really appreciate that. Um, what, I, what I really actually want to get into, and I have a note here in front of me, it's the cognitive reappraisal piece which talks about the distortions. So the idea is around the assumptions, right? It's around making incorrect, I think he's making incorrect appraisal that can cause internal distress. So one of the things that I do sometimes is I see a big truck and I use this example endlessly because I have a <laughs> slide in one of my empathy workshops that's like empathy for the people who bug us. So I see a big truck, right? I'm driving. I see a big truck. Maybe the truck has those nuts hanging off the back of it. You know, that that was just a bonus thing that would really pull me over the top. But and maybe there's a maybe there's like a American flag. Maybe there's even a Blue Lives Matter flag, right? 
And then I like, and then internally, I'm just like distressed. Internally, I'm like this MAGA fucker. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm like creating that division emotionally, internally. And then it's done, right? There, and then, then I'm, then there's no stepping forward. There's no curiosity. It's just like, this is that person. I am done. And I see that, yes, that can be a useful protector. And it's maybe, maybe I need to explore that, right? So talk a little bit about those, like the default reactions that we have and that piece of it, because that, that piece of it is so crucial to human, to humaning, right? Yeah, completely. Um, so yeah, so we do have a, a chapter on cognitive reappraisal, um, and how people can use it to do exactly that, right? To kind of, um, check some assumptions to, to kind of reframe, um, something, uh, especially if you're about to go into, right, like a conversation with somebody. Um, and so, so the idea of cognitive reappraisal is that whenever we interact with the world, we constantly kind of make up stories in our head, right? So mm-hmm. like you see the truck and you already have a whole story about who is in that truck. And yep. what they will think about you and what their worldviews are um, and mm-hmm. what kind of conversation you would have if you have that person. And, you know, before you ever even interact with them yep. um, and kind of the research on cognitive reappraisal argues that, like, we, we see something or we there's a stimulus out in the world. We make up a story. That story impacts our emotions and those emotions impact our behavior. Mm. Right. So. Um, before you even know anything about this other person, like you are going to have a reaction, yeah. an emotional and maybe a behavioral one as well. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of cognitive reappraisal is how can you tell another story um, that will then also help your emotions and your behaviors, right? And so, um, and what's I think really interesting from a research standpoint is there's research saying it, it, like, it doesn't matter if the other story is true or not. You just need another story. Right. So, um, you know, like make up a, you know, what, a, what if the story is that, you know, somebody, uh, I don't know, a president Obama was, you know, <laughs> needed to borrow a truck to get, to get someplace and he's in that truck. You there you know. go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It's just Obama driving the truck with the nuts. <laughs> it, was, it was it was an emergency. It was the only truck around. Yeah. Um, and so right, so like any other story, then changes your physical reaction, which mm-hmm. changes your emotions to which changes your reactions. And the idea is that like if you can come up with a story that doesn't have such an emotional trigger, um, you can maybe be you know show up in the world more the way you would maybe ideally like to. Yeah. Um, giving people more of a benefit of the doubt or being more thoughtful yes. or being able to process more information because once we're emotionally triggered we also narrow in that's one of the other things right yeah we shut yeah. down even yeah um and I, and i can see how that could be very useful if we learn that as a as a leader right as someone who manages people who's in the context of a team right like i can yeah that that's crucial for you what what's an example of like one of those cognitive reappraisals you, you've had to do maybe in your work life, maybe in your personal life? Um, I will say actually cognitive reappraisal is, is a tool that I use a lot. <laughs> Great. Um, it is, it is definitely one that I've, I've found useful. Um, I mean, you've done the research, you <laughs> yeah, know, it works. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, you know, I think I use it a lot when I get an email that frustrates me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if it's a whether it's work related or other related, or you know, it's it's that all of the classic like oh, if somebody emails me something where it's clear that they didn't understand where I was coming from, or it sounds rude in email, because right, like you can mm-hmm. miss a lot of information in, in email. Um, or disrespectful an email um and then i feel right like triggered because yep. i have that emotional reaction um and rather than hitting reply right away and being like wtf um or deleting the email and being like well screw them 
I've found it really helpful to like come up with another story of like, well, what might be happening in that person's life for them to, to send me this email that like mm. maybe mm-hmm. feels rude or disrespectful or like they didn't read my email. Um, yeah, I found it really helpful to again to like then be able to respond with empathy, right? To be able to respond um, rather than react um, and just not jump to, to conclusions and escalate. Because again, one of the interesting things that's also in the research is we make up a lot of conflict that's not there, right? Like I can mm-hmm. imagine that I'm in a fight with this person, whereas they were on a plane and needed, you know, to turn off their phone in three seconds, and so accidentally in all caps said, you know, do this now. Um, and I think that they're fighting with me. And meanwhile, you know, nothing is happening on their side. Yeah, that that is, I think about that from time to time, the piece of it that's like, I'm over here or you're over here. And we, we're just like awash in internal distress and they have no idea. Exactly. Right? Like, why do we do that to ourselves? <laughs> and I think a piece of it, like for me is like, I am a very sensitive person so i like i do need to like gather some tools about like you know some boundaries and some of this self-awareness work some of these reappraisals right like otherwise it's just gonna you may to use sort of a um a work term it's gonna lead to burnout or it's gonna lead to just overwhelm right i i talk a lot about um and I think you mentioned something about this, or maybe the website Candid did. I don't remember, but like this idea around being an idealist and a realist at the same time, right? I think about that a lot because I I do get overwhelmed a lot, and I I like I have I am like a utopian like head in the clouds person. Like I want to like change the world in all of the beautiful ways, and I don't want to kill myself in the process right like I, I i need to be useful so but it's hard like it's hard to be realistic sometimes because reality <laughs> is fucking oppressively difficult but then i'm remember then i have to remind myself like no and you're a white cis feely boy like you you've, <laughs> you're like you're dealing with some intersectionality that's very great like use use those powers for good yeah, it's it's messy. Like how do you think about the the idealistic and realistic and sort of holding those true cuz you're clearly an idealist. You know, you have your PhD. You've done all this research, right? Like you care deeply about this stuff and making the world better and supporting leaders who are making the world better like in your work at Candid, right? How do you hold the idealism and the realism? Yeah, uh, I love that question because I think that's also something that I actually think about a lot for for those reasons, right? Like I I have described myself before as as a practical dreamer. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, like that. Um, I I definitely do have a lot of ideals and a lot of you know dreams, and um, I think balancing that with with some practicality and realism is important so that you don't burn out, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I am somebody that like cares very passionately about my work. It's, it's my work is, is my passion, right? Like I do research on, on the things that I think are important in the mm-hmm. world. And, um, and so it's really hard to like not take things personally. Um, and just, you know, all research aside, just like as a person, I often kind of check in with myself about like, am I carrying the right amount? Basically, mm. right? Because it's easy to get worked up about little things. And at the end of the day, you're like, nope, that's actually, I don't need to be really upset about this little thing because mm-hmm. there's, there's bigger things in the world. Um, and then sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is like, yeah, no, like this is important to me for my values and who I want to be as a person. Um, so I will die on the hill if I need to. Um, <laughs> but, but I think that that is something that I, I do need to, I do regularly is, is kind of check in. Um, check in. That's so important. Yeah. yeah. Always checking in. Right. Cause like, I mean, as, as is very clear in, in the sort of the context of, of this book change, right? Like we're always changing, you know, and we're having to change. Right. Um, so che- always checking in on like, Oh, 
does this still ring true to me? Does this why still ring true to me? Does this passion still fill me up? Um, yeah, asking those questions internally. Yeah, and that goes, I think, also, you know, aligns with, with again, like this, this particular book kind of framing around resilience and um, that, you know, it's in kind of how we frame it in the, the first chapter is, is that as a leader, right? Like, I mean, you are caring passionately and you have a lot going on. There's a, maybe some overwhelm, maybe some idealism. Um, it is really easy to, to put yourself last. Right. Mm-hmm. To like run yourself into the ground to saying I'll sleep when I'm dead. Um, and and. Because at that, that just seems like the, the right thing to do is like it's, it's also it's valorized. It is. It yeah. is. Right. So. Um, and so our approach to resilience is basically saying, you know, if you if you really care about this work, um, you need to be able to to do that for the long haul, right? So so you need to stop and, and take a step back and prioritize self-care and how you show up in the world and taking care of yourself and taking care of others because if you don't do that first, you're going to burn out and you won't be able to continue to do the important work for the long haul. And so yep. we talk about, you know, reframing from like being a sprint runner to a marathoner, right? Like if you're run marathons, which I do not, but I have friends who do. Um, and you know, if you're running a marathon, you, you know, you stop and eat, you stop and walk, you stop and pace yourself so that you can get to the finish line. Um, it's not about running as fast as you can. That is not what marathons are about. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And that's where the realistic, the realism, you know, it's, I'm a human. I can't do all this all day, every day, you know, like I need to check in, I need to like know my limits and I need to check in on my energy and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. That's super important. I love that. So how, how is the book like promotion? Like how, like how are people receiving it? Like how, like, what has that process been like for you? Um, yeah, it's a good question. It's it's been it's been fun. I'm I've always kind of wanted to be an author, and this is my first like real full length book, and so I'm really excited about it. It's a um, it's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Thank you. I um I hope it's not my last. I I definitely want to do more of them. Um, it's been great. Um, again, it's been published through the Center for Creative Leadership, and so it's it's been um really helpful and useful to to kind of have that connection to the leadership community and leaders that are interested in in development um, yeah. and it's being kind of put into some of the the courses that is are being taught there so oh that's um, great yeah it's still in you know i think the early days but um i'm really optimistic um and have been getting some really lovely feedback um that it's been useful to folks that's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's so, uh, yeah, more and more. Um, I mean, listeners, I'm talking to you now, if you, if you work at a business, if you're a leader at a business, like, uh, pick up the book, order it. Um, I, I prefer you order it from bookshop.org if it's there or directly from the, what was it? The center Center for creative leadership, center for creative leadership. Um, but if Amazon is your only option, uh, do that, uh, of course. But just yeah, get the book. Um, it's it's great. Uh, how about your work? Like, so you're senior director of research at Candid. I was like, I was like exploring the website this morning. Really fascinating. Like, what? Tell me, like, what is what does Candid do? Yeah, um, Candid is it's it's a nonprofit um, that does research and collects data on nonprofits. So we're kind of meta in that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, you know, the interesting thing about the social sector, um, whether it's philanthropy or, or nonprofit organizations, is that there's just, um, it can be, it can feel kind of opaque, right? Like it can feel mm. like there's not a lot of information or, or data about like what's happening. There's lots and lots of little organizations. It's really common for there to be a one or two person nonprofit or, or foundation. Um, right. You know, when it comes to like foundations, 
that give out a lot of grants for the social sector. Only like 10% of them even have websites. And so mm. it's really hard to, to navigate. Um, and so at Candid, our, our mission is to get you the information you need to do good. And, um, we do that through, uh, collecting and sharing data about the social sector and then also doing research about the social sector. Um, really kind of at a high level, right? Like how many organizations are, are working on this kind of work and how mm. many, you know, grant makers are, are funding these projects and, and where, where are the, um, you know, the opportunities and challenges. Right. And how does that, like, if I, is that for like the everyday person like me, like as a consumer, like how is that helpful for me? Yeah. So we, there, it, it depends, depending on where you sit, there's a lot of different ways to kind of interact with Candid. If you are in a, a nonprofit, we have Candid profiles where if you're a nonprofit, you can fill out information about your organization and okay. we really elevate that so that like thousands of people and you know grant makers can can see your work and understand mm-hmm. what you do mm-hmm. um it's also kind of like a free website if you're uh you know not able to, to create one for yourself i see yeah um we also help uh you know folks that are um trying to give out grants uh you know like we, we do a lot of like fact checking and irs details right to make sure that nonprofits are um uh, tax deductible and all of that. And so, um, yeah. And, and then for researchers, we just have a huge, a huge database with a lot of information. If folks want to do research about any given topic. Mm. I love that. Yeah. It's so, I, I, I think that's so important. I mean, I, I, I've interacted with many of a nonprofit in my day and, and some have been, yeah, tiny little like, these two people doing this amazing work, you know, providing, you know, abortion access in Arkansas or whatever, and then, you know, uh, bigger organizations and stuff. And from a, like, I want to be a part of like the change and um, be good perspective as just a consumer, as a individual person, like it does feel a little bit uh, messy at times, right? Like, um, it does feel like, uh, where, where should I go? Where, who should I trust? You know, all of these questions, right. That come up, uh, especially come up when big things happen in our society. Right. You know, the murder of George Floyd, right. As an example, right. You know, abortion rights being stripped, you know, those big, big things happen. And then you feel this maybe overwhelm. And so maybe, part of candid is, is maybe reducing some of that overwhelm in those instances. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually something that we've just started doing in the, the last couple of years, as, as you've mentioned, right. Lots of, lots of crises going on um, is we've been putting together these rapid response pages that kind of highlight mm. here, here are the people that are working on these different topics and here's funders who are funding it and trying to pull the different information together so that, Whoever you are, right, doesn't have to, to go to Google and try to put it together themselves. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that is, that is definitely something we try to do. Um, and it is tough. It is tough when there's so many small organizations. And if you are an individual that's not working at one, but wants to support a cause, right, it's hard to, to figure that out as well. And so, um, yeah, you can look up any, any nonprofit, um, in the United States currently um uh, on candid and, and find out all about what they're doing that's cool and your role there like what do you what do you do i mean i know your title but like help me understand <laughs> what that means <laughs> yeah um so i have an incredibly fun job of um taking some of the the data and and helping explain it and and tell the story um Mm. of what's happening in the sector so there's you know we have i mean there's 1.8 million nonprofits in the u.s alone um a lot of data points um, and then we have all kinds of information about all of them and so again it can be overwhelming um overwhelming and then data also at 
that level, you end up missing a lot of the stories, right? Because like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of different stories that happen within that mm-hmm. 1.8 million number. Um, and so what I do and what my team does is is internally like pro- look through the data that's being processed um, and and work on kind of unpacking. So what does that mean, right? What do all these numbers mean? Right. Um, and and telling some of the different stories that are happening in the sector. I love that. It's so important. It's really cool. And uh, the website is candid.org. Yep. Great, great, great. Um, Listeners, check it out. Uh, That will also be linked in the show notes at feelyhuman.co. Let's talk about empathy heroes, Kathleen. Uh, We always always kind of wrap up the show um, mentioning someone in our lives, even a character from a story or a movie we love. Uh, Someone just who's uh saturated in empathy someone who's very empathetic compassionate feely um i will go first to give you a moment to reflect on your empathy hero so you know i have to think of these every episode so (laughs) it's always sort of like what's happening right in front of me and jessica and i just started watching this show called back to life which is on showtime and it's it's created and starring uh this woman named daisy haggard and um the show is about this conceit is about like she did something. She act, basically killed someone and she's in prison for about 20 years from the age of like 18 to, you know, uh, 48. So 20 years, 38. I don't know. I can't do math until she's like an adult. Right. And she comes back to this small, like English coastal town and dealing with the, scrutiny and and hate from the local town and it's you know i think it's described as a dark comedy uh it is dark at times and it's like some of the emotional beats of the story are very very like well done and nuanced and very grounded and very relatable it's like really emotionally intelligent uh the show is very emotionally intelligent and and i just I wanted to give a shout out to the show and the creator Daisy Haggard because it's it's really worth watching. You know, it's it's it obviously covers some hard stuff, but it's uh, it's really worth your time. It's I think it's very empathetic um, in how we treat people who have been in the system, how we treat people, you know, in terms of giving them a second chance. How we make assumptions, even there's a lot of that in there. Um, so, it's a really great show. It's called Back to Life, uh, created by Daisy Haggard, and uh, it's on Showtime. So that's my empathy here this week. Awesome! I had that. Yeah, I haven't heard of that show. I'm gonna have to check it out. Yeah, it's great. It's two seasons, uh, six you know six episodes a season, and they're like twenty five minutes each episode. So you know it's one of those British shows. It's great. How about you, Empathy Hero? Yeah, it's hard. I, um, uh, I'm sure that there's just so many. Um, but I will say that the first person who popped into my mind when you, you asked that question, um, was, um, Nelson Mandela, who, uh, you know, I guess a similar theme of, of spending a lot of time behind bars and, and being mm-hmm. able to show up so human, um, and with so much empathy and, um, I yeah, he's definitely one of my personal heroes, just in the way he shows up in the world. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, going back to that that theme of like the balancing the idealism and and realism. I think I'm gonna I might not get this quote verbatim correct, but he says, you know, it always seems impossible until it's done. Mm. Um, and I often think about that in in the work that I do of you know when it feels overwhelming. Um, you know, kind of reminding myself that that's part of the process. It feels impossible until it's done. I love that. What a great reminder. Um, yeah, that's that's giving me goosebumps thinking about. I needed to hear that, so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Kat, where can the listeners like connect with you? Obviously, order your book, all of that stuff. Um, yes, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I can be found on, on LinkedIn. If you just, uh, look up my name, 
think I'm the only Kathleen Clerkin on there. Um, and uh, the book is available at um, the Center for Creative Leadership, which is ccl.org. Um, and yeah, lots of other places where books are sold as well. Amazing. Well, listeners, those links will be in the show notes at feelyhuman.co. Kat, what a delight this was. Thank you for um, you know reconnecting after all these years. Yeah, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy.